Hey, I'm Scott. And I'm Chris. And this is Doxologic, where we help you think with your Bible. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Doxologic. And we, Scott, are going to jump right into episode two of a Roman Catholic two-part series, I guess we could call it. Uh, Honestly, we could do so many parts. If you listen to part one, um, you already know that we flew by some stuff that um, some of this, well, probably all of it has how many books uh, represented from a reformed, uh, well, from a reformed Protestant perspective or a Catholic perspective? So, so much. Yeah, and we went through so much just to cover enough ground. Um, yeah. And somebody could say, "Why aren't you doing like a seven or eight part series?" And and really, the answer for that is we want to give at least a framework. We don't have anything on the subject at all, right? right. And so, as we were covering, I think a lot of this came also out of last twenty twenty three's episodes about kind of Christian cults and those kind of things yeah. that were close nearby Christianity but weren't kind of thing. So obviously, Roman Catholicism was just comes an up. interest, yeah, mm-hmm. and comes up with a lot of people. And so we're like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna address it, but let's do it in the same manner. Let's do it in two parts. We, we may come back, Chris, and, and do eight parts. So I don't... Yeah. We're, we're simply trying to get to what we think are the most important issues and that this is useful for the mission of, um, you know, gospel proclamation and those kind of things. And yeah, we may, we may dive into more at some yeah. point, but so we're going to follow the same pattern we did with all the other, other episodes. We hit history and doctrine in the first episode, and now we're going to talk about sort of how does, uh, what, how are we to understand Roman Catholicism today? Um, what are you going to run into when you meet people? And what are some really important verses and questions and um, some things to have in your back pocket, so to speak? Yeah. And as we mentioned at the end of episode one, we consciously did not get to Mary. Uh, Mariology, as it's called, we'll talk about the the uh, Mariolatry at times as well. And so we know that that's a, it's a big one for people. And so uh, one reason we set it aside for part two is that we are going to read uh, several of the questions that have come in, at least a couple about Mary and a couple others as well. We want you to know that when when you submit mailbag questions, we do get quite a few. Thank you. It's awesome that you do that. You can uh, you can go to Doxologic's uh, web page from doxa.church and find Doxologic there, or if you have our app, you can also submit questions there. And we, we get a lot of questions, and so it's helpful when we're able to kind of put them together. We're going to focus on Mary eventually in this episode. But first, let's talk about the state of modern Roman Catholic Church. And when we say that, not because we are the final authority on it, but let's just move into the modern era, I guess, Scott. And there's a there's a um, kind of a reputation the Catholic Church has to act as if there is a permanence, there is a solidarity, there is a never-changing nature of the Roman Catholic Church. And we heard to say that's really not how it's playing out. Mm-hmm. So let's start with what they would say is this forever the same aspect yes. of their church. Yeah, so forever the same was this phrase, this Latin phrase, semper, e- is it edem? I think so. Okay, we're going to go with that. We'll just say it with boldness and move yep. forward. Um, but from at the beginning of the 20th century, Roman Catholicism was considered semper edem, forever, edem, forever the same. Um, that Roman Catholic Church... Um, had never changed and could never change. Now, of course, that's an oversimplification, right? Because the church has undergone development throughout the centuries and all that stuff. But I think when they're speaking specifically of Roman Catholic dogmas, right? Like the Immaculate Conception and fallibility of the Pope, right? These things have been 
added mm-hmm. over time. Um, but they're going to kind of try to say that we have been the same and our doctrines are consistent and there's not a lot of change. We're and, not like those Protestants that splinter and all of this. Right. We're going to get to that too. Cause that's yeah. part of the issue. In fact, we're going to talk about what there's a draw kind of to Roman Catholicism in our day. Uh, and what is that? And some of that I think yeah. is the massive amount of fractures, fractures and splits in the Protestant um, world. And so, but evidently the, the point is, is that we see some movement. Um, yeah. At least we see a willingness to, to move in some areas. Um, and when you think about Vatican II, there, there definitely seems to be, especially in the 20th century, this kind of movement eventually towards even things, Chris, like reevaluating Martin Luther's Reformation um, issues, those sticking points. You know, he wasn't really all that bad of a guy in every way type of thing. Like you said, conciliatory. Yeah. um, Referring to Protestants as separated brethren. Yes. A very different tone, just in that phrase from Vatican I from the 1870s. Even talking about wanting to be more open about their own, they call them the sins of the church. Yeah. Right? And -hmm. and that's not even getting into some of the the more modern issues that you see in documentaries about priests and, and... uh, yeah. sexual scandals, scandals and, and all yeah. kinds of that stuff. And so you just have a, a willingness to kind of relook at the Reformation. Was it really that bad kind of thing? Was it really that different? Or were we all just kind of, maybe they're just kind of mm-hmm. stepbrothers sort of thing, yeah. right? And then you've got like this Catholic Bible movement that's taking place in the 20th century where they're really encouraging people to read their Bibles. And so there's been a shift there. And, and again, we're, we're, they're not doctrinal always, but there's movements in all kinds of different ways, right? Yeah. There are some doctrines being solidified like we talked about, but then there are just other movements of reconsideration. Um, But with Vatican II, so we're talking 1962 to 1965, um, some say that the only way um, to some understanding of the Roman Church today is through analysis of what happened during the Second Vatican Council. And uh, just to give it a summation, the point of that council was not to be a discussion of one article or another of the fundamental tenets of the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. These were all presumed. Mm -hmm. This this was established. What they were going back in to do um, was not talk about the deposit of faith, which they would consider forever the same, but rather the way in which it was presented that, that kind of issue. And that was the thing that they took up in the council. And so as a result, um, yes, there were doctrines that were affirmed, uh, usually by direct quotation from the first Vatican Council, but what came out of this is some changes, some liturgy reforms. You have the develop- uh, liturgy being the way of their worship. Yes, the services. way of their worship. Yep. Yeah. And um, and I think in a sense becoming. I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but almost like just becoming more modern, like noticing the the need to being more accessible for the modern man kind of idea. And yeah. so wrestling with how does the liturgy become more approachable in a sense, mm-hmm. if I were to summarize it, yeah. you, have the, you have the expansion of the charismatic movement. So now you have a portion of Roman Catholic, which can seem at times uh, perhaps to people um, austere uh, and obviously very formal. Mm-hmm. And now you have a more experiential um, kind of birthing of the, uh, uh, here's another way that you mm-hmm. can experience Roman Catholic um, spiritual life. Which would be surprising to a lot of people that there is such a thing. Right. If you're not, I, if you're I, not paying I, attention, you can't be blamed uh, for not knowing, but there is a charismatic movement uh, and, a, and a very, very liberal movement as well. Right. Particularly in some 
uh, nations, not only in South America, but I think leading the way in certain parts of South America. Uh, of, but also, you've got some of the most conservative parts in South mm-hmm. America as well. So yeah. you cannot name just one part of the world and say, that's the liberal wing of the Catholic Church. Yeah. That's where conservative Catholicism is. you you got to a mix up of a lot of things around the world and then a new attitude as we mentioned toward non-catholic. And this is right? really the ecumenical um, part. Yeah. Right? E- ecumenical kind of co- coming together that that again I like that word conciliatory as opposed to anathema that we would be literally like damned is the idea of anathema uh, uh damned to hell and and that's how they used to speak of Protestants for hundreds of years and now separated churches or separated communities um that they would say is under the umbrella of of God's church, um, but but separated from the mother church of yeah. Roman Catholicism. Yeah, they may use words like movements; those are movements, yeah. and but they're not saying they're anathema. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a movement there as well. But now, if we can use the ecumenical piece, um, noting that there's some shift and some movement, at least in the approach, at least in the conciliatory nature, as we mentioned in liturgy and other things, we, we are seeing a lot of that. But that also starts to bleed into what I would like to discuss a little bit, which is, uh, I think some people probably have seen this. I don't know if you've seen this directly, Chris, but there is a Catholic draw. There is a draw towards towards, mm-hmm. towards Catholicism in this day. Um, some, some hearing this that grew up Catholic and saw so many abuses and problems and issues may be surprised by that, right? If that's your experience. On the other side, there seems to be a significant draw, and there's reasons for that. Um, First and foremost, on the ecumenical side, there's obviously overlap with Catholics and Protestants, and that one of the bridges that gets someone maybe interested in defecting from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism is simply the shared stand on many moral and social issues, right? right. Defending the up- unborn, upholding traditional marriage, standing up for religious liberty. Yep. These are examples of where there's overlap. We, yep. we In certain issues from a political sociological level, we could align. Um, and then I think there's also, just in the day that we speak of, and this gets into another interesting um subject, but this, the kind of nuance of someone identifying as Roman Catholic versus believing Roman Catholic theology. So you're saying somebody very well, many do say they're Roman Catholic, but they don't uphold the whole body of doctrine. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And maybe they don't know it, or maybe they could leave some of it behind a little embarrassed by parts of it, but, but they still love the church, yeah, they love their families in the church, and so they don't leave the Roman Catholic faith. Yeah, or even the idea of, um, man, I really think so and so, who is my relative or friend or neighbor, who's Roman Catholic, is really a believer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's we, we just there's there's distinction I think between not everyone who says they're Roman Catholic necessarily identify with Roman Catholic theology. So to the question of, is it possible you could find a born-again Christian worshiping in a Catholic church? The answer is, I'm I'm sure there is. Um, And and yet, you're not 
a born again believer in a Catholic church because you believe Roman Catholic theology, mm-hmm. but you may very well identify with, you know, as a Roman Catholic and go to Roman Catholic church, right? Yeah. So anyway, th- that's an interesting piece of where we see even in our modern day, more of an identification with the position. And we see this in kind of the nominal mm-hmm. and any religion, right? I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and, or I'm what, what, whatever you are, you, you grew up, I'm Christian, right? And that just means your family was Christian. You grew up Christian. Christian, maybe you grew up with the Ten Commandments or something like that, but you don't mean you're a born-again follower of Jesus Christ yeah. kind of idea. Now, there is there is some other reasons that people jump in, uh, not jump in, but they t- transition to Roman Catholicism, and part of that appeal is we could call it mysticism, or we could call it a, um, a rootedness in ancient worship, or uh, wh- whether it's Latin or the Mass, or the, just the way, I would say there's an enchantment at times compared to the disenchantment or disenfranchisement, at least, with uh, um, just a big box store church mm-hmm. uh, of, of whether it's a mega church or not, it's not really the point, but it's just kind of vapid, it's kind of like shallow, consumer church in some consumeristic. ways. Yeah. It's just the it's just very fad-ish. It's just kind of always keeping up with the times and change as opposed to at least what is perceived as more um, again permanent and ancient and rooted and you get you get people drawn into that they're dissatisfied with what they've seen and again sort of the shallow version of some evangelical uh, uh, movements or, or denominations and then you get into something like a um, uh, the rituals and the explanation of what's happening in worship, even though we would say there are great doctrinal issues there, people get wrapped up in that mm-hmm. as they just see what they are what they're what they think they're missing and it getting answered for them in the Catholic Church. Yeah, so they'll take something like prayer and just go, man, it just seems so, like you said, so vapid, so um, surface, so superficial, and then they'll read something like the Book of Common Prayer or something like that and just go, ah, this is the depth, this is it, this Mm -hmm. is... And then they start to get into something more historical, and that's a big piece of, I think, the appeal of Roman Catholicism today for evangelicals is just like you said, that connection to the past and to history, right? Um, Sometimes there's a piece in going, wait a minute, uh, the Protestant church seems to be like every man for himself on every interpretation. Mm -hmm. It is kind of nice to say from the Roman Catholic perspective that only the magisterium can interpret scripture, right? It just solid, it it, it narrows down where, from whom you can get the answers and what the interpretation is versus mm-hmm. living in this world where you have 20 interpretations wild, of something. Wild West yeah, of just everyone has a subtle a, a kind of interpretation, you know. And this by the way, uh is an important piece to why creeds and confessions matter for the Protestant church as sure. well, right? It anchors us in something beyond just the existential, we live in the here and now, this is mm-hmm. how church has always been, you know, kind of thing, versus saying, no, we stand on the shoulders of and adhere to the same creeds and confessions of the church, you know, historically, there is a really important piece to that, that I think maybe so many churches not having that or not being anchored to that, even within the preaching and those kind of things leads people to wanting that in another way. Yeah, yeah. As, as we think about some of the... Um 
kind of the, the liturgy again, the, the way in which worship is conducted in the Mass and significance of elements of worship. So I, I, worship I, I, um, I like this quote that you had from um, a man named Brad at Little John. Put it on his finger, put his finger on it in this way. He said this, again, this is a quote, again, it was the contention of the Reformers that the beauty of holiness in which Rome gloried, even, uh, even though was but a painted facade, a, uh, a simulacrum of the real thing. Rather than revealing the supernatural in the natural, the extraordinary in the ordinary, their transubstantiation could only replace bread and wine with heavenly substances. Rather than granting the faithful believer access into the Holy of Holies to feast before the Lord, they left him to gawk from the outer courts while the priestly class interceded on his behalf and brought some morsels of grace out to sustain him on his weary pilgrimage. Rather than inviting the believer to blink dazedly into the blinding light of God's presence clothed in the righteousness of Christ, they encourage him to rest content with mediated access dressed up in the hand-me-downs of the saints and mm. the apostles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people, uh, people desire something appropriately, mm-hmm. desire something more weighty and, and more reverential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, the people think that it's in the cathedrals, it's in the incense, it's in the burning of candles, it's in the, the priestly robes and all of the kind of trappings, what could be called trappings or pomp and circumstance. And the truth is that there's an emptiness behind it, mm-hmm. but when, when the emptiness is seen in your Protestant maybe church, again, it's shallow and it's surface, it's, it's believed that the depth is found there, and unfortunately, the story of... Catholic Church history is that it's actually the emptiness is behind those things that look deep and rich and glorious, and they're not taking you to Christ oftentimes, they're taking you into maybe less understanding because it's not really based in biblical truth, but based in tradition. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting, the way you're saying that. I, I think what they're often after is something really genuine. They want to be changed, Chris, from the inside out. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, they want the full experience. They want a robust faith, right? Where it's like, that's the why the robes are important. It's inside out. It's everything I am. It's, it's the... It's the um, actual building. And it's not to say that the way a building is doesn't have any significance. Sure. And, and certainly there's, def, there's beauty is defined. There's actually, there's actually an objective sense of beauty and those kind of things. Um, but that's, I think what's being grasped at there. They're wanting to submit themselves and be a part of something larger than themselves. They want something that's a total transformation that carries a kind of reverence that would seem to align with with this their souls with their souls for, longing yeah. for relate you know relationship with the Almighty God right and so I think that's a piece of it and just to understand kind of where some of this is coming from and then I think another piece that people struggle with is just the the unity thing and we've touched on it a little bit with like so many interpretations within the Protestant mm-hmm. Church we're just all over the place versus the Church of Rome kind of coming down with the interpretations. It kind of cuts through the clutter, if you will. But, you know, right now, evangelicalism, just in general, I mean, it's fractured more than any time in my lifetime. Even even just like um, small tribes fracturing into smaller and smaller tribes. I mean, the division within Protestantism has been rampant. And they're going to say, man, but what about the preserving of Christian unity? What about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? The, the oneness of the church seems to be um, severely lacking on a Protestant side. And um, 
and the Roman Catholic Church is is really pro this. And so there, there's there's a lot of draws here. But again, I think Michael Horton is helpful here as he kind of gets us to think about this in a different way. But he kind of says, listen, the church is always on the receiving end in its relationship to Christ. That is that it's never the redeemer, but always the redeemed. Mm-hmm. Never the head, but always the body. Um, and so when you kind of compare that with the institutional Roman Catholic church, yeah, the church may at times feel deficient. A Protestant church. Uh, I'm sorry. Would yes. Feel deficient. The, the Protestant church. Yes. A Protestant church would feel deficient. Um, but we have to remember kind of the order and what, who gives the significance to what, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And that that should be gleaned from the Lord and received by the church and, um, submitted to the authority of Scripture to really clarify that for us. But evidently, I, I'm seeing this, Chris. Like, I, I've watched friends leave kind of an evangelical faith yeah. insofar as I could tell and come to a Roman Catholic position and find a lot of comfort and peace here with because of these dynamics. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Man, while so much more could be probably just analyzed around that, I think it would be good if we we got to the question of, of what about Mary? Okay, right. Uh, what do we do um, with the way uh, Roman Catholics historically and many still today treat uh, uh, treat Mary, the mother of Jesus? Let me give you a couple of questions that have come in. Here, here's uh, two of them. There's been several. Um, as someone who was raised Roman Catholic, I was taught many things about Mary that aren't necessarily biblical. Now, since leaving the Roman Catholic Church, I find myself having an aversion to or resenting Mary altogether, mm. which this person says, which I know is an overreaction in the opposite direction. So here's the question. Would you please address a right regard for Mary that is faithful to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And in another one, um, in the Apostles' Creed, the Virgin Mary was written capital V, Virgin Mary. I confess to a knee-jerk reaction to all things Roman Catholic on their face. I've been brought to comfort with the presence of Catholic as a small c in the in the Apostles' Creed, um, which is how we do it in baptisms, uh, having debated a co-worker about the deification and the supplantation of Christ with the Holy Mother. This person just says, should Virgin Mary be capital V, capital M? Or should it be virgin is an adjective. Virgin mm. just describes who Mary was. And that's mm. a very interesting question, and that's just, that's, that's just some of the, man, some of the nuance. And I will say the educated questions that we get are really a joy to see. Mm-hmm. People wrestling through honestly good, um, important theological distinctions. And mm-hmm. so, so about Mary, um, one of the important things to see is that uh, Mariology, as you would kind of, that's how you would theologically describe it, the study of Mary and what is believed about Mary, it really wasn't well formed during the Reformation. You don't see the Reformers crusading against all these like... Um, false doctrines of Mary. It's actually more like the 1800s, where things start to get uh, it kind of interesting. Not, not, not to say that Mary was not venerated and all sorts of things, especially in uh, iconoclastic art and different things. Mary was uh, always portrayed in either a heavenly or a very glorious mm-hmm. way. And so this is not to say it started sure. in the 1800s, but Pope Pius IX uh, in 1854, for example, unilaterally declared the Immaculate Conception. And Scott, 
I want to say this. It's the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Mm -hmm. And for a Protestant listening to this, you might hear Immaculate Conception and assume that is Jesus. No, assume football. (laughs) The Immaculate Reception, right? Oh, oh, Reception, Uh, The Immaculate Conception of Jesus is what many think that, that, that Jesus was born without a sin nature. Well... Actually, the Immaculate Conception is of Mary. That mm-hmm. the, the the doctrine is that Mary did not have a sin nature. She did not have original sin, and this was declared de fide, which means it is of the faith in a uh, papal infallibility way. This is the word of God on Mary. She was immaculately immaculately conceived, did not have a sin nature, which allowed her to give birth to the Son. Hmm. And then with that, proceeded without any sin the rest of her life, Chris? And also a virginity that was perpetual for the rest of her life? Flatly contradicted by the scriptures with Jesus having younger siblings. Yes. But nonetheless, it is a commonly held belief. Okay. So what's a Hail Mary then? Well, besides it, another football thing, <laughs> besides another football thing, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace. This is what it says. Hail Mary. Let me start over. <laughs> Do Hail, you want to throw a football first? <laughs> Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mm-hmm. Now, The first part, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Uh, That part is largely straight from Scripture. We're not here to quibble over the fact that Mary was blessed among women. It's exactly what the angel says. And so you're talking about Luke chapter 1, verses 28 and 42. And then you've got Mary being called holy, and if we're rightly understanding that all Christians are saints, and we're all holy by the the virtue of the righteousness of Christ, we would say, okay, I can, I can understand that. Um, we're made holy by God's uh, the gift of righteousness, but what about Mother of God, Scott? Mm-hmm. Should a Protestant be able to affirm the Mother of God aspect of that? It's bothered a lot of Protestants, yep. uh, but has actually been the historic teaching of the Church since the Council of Ephesus back in 431. So if understood rightly, as Mary carried Jesus, who was the divine son of God incarnate, then it's okay to call her, the the term is theotokos, right? Which is that the Greek? Yeah. Yeah, theotokos, the mother of God. But it didn't originally mean that Jesus received his divine nature from Mary in any way, which people think is the case. Right. And so um, one of the quotes is, the one who gives birth to the one who is God. Um, that's, a, that's, that's understandable. A, yeah, yeah exactly. that's a good defensible position on Theotokos for Mary. Um, being called the mother of God. Being yeah. called the mother yeah. of God, but praying for us, mm-hmm. right, sinners, this is where we start to have a problem, right? Mary's seen as interceding for us in heaven now, or at least in our death, um, operating in the role that Jesus as the intercessor, right? It mm-hmm. starts to get very... A mediatorial function A mediatorial in function yeah. of Mary yeah. in that sense. And so, um, but yeah, you, you could get into a lot of the components here. One of the things that I think is important to understand as you're talking about like, hey, the Hail Mary, like the content of that is biblical. I mean, hem in your doctrine of Mary by the scriptures, right? right? Let the scriptures 
know the scripture so well. Where is Mary addressed, right, in the gospel accounts, uh, in the Bible in general, but that's where it's primarily located, yep. and hone in on what's there so that you can see that Mary herself didn't think she was without sin, Yep. right? Mary herself knew she needed a savior. Mary herself didn't take it as, you know, even the command at, at the end where it says, let it be to me uh, according to your word is not her telling the angels, like, here's how it's going to be done, but receiving humbly this, uh, essentially this being called out by God mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. this critical component of redemption, yeah. redemptive history. That is called Mary's fiat. Yes. F-I-A-T, Mary's fiat, this idea that when the angel came to her and she responded with, let it be according to, as the Lord has said, I'm summarizing there, that let it be was actually a command to the angel. that without, Tell the angel what to do. Yes, without her willing participation, God could not have... Um, brought the Redeemer yep. to, into her womb. That's Mary's fiat, as opposed to what you said. I just want to give the title yeah, to that's it. Helpful. So if you hear Mary's fiat, that's what it's talking about. They believe, many would believe, that she commanded the angel as opposed to submitted in that moment to God's will. Yeah, even just the idea of Luke 41, 46, and 47, you know, Mary overwhelmed by what the angel declares, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Savior. For he has looked on the sinless estate of his servant. Uh, not quite. Right. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant, right. not sinless estate. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Thomas Aquinas, one of the supreme theologians in, in Roman Catholic Church size, this is 13th century uh, theologian, he refuted uh, in his own writings Mary as sinless, believing that she was confessing in that verse her need for a Savior. So you'll hear Roman Catholics sometimes try to nuance that exegetically, what could mean this and that. Thomas well, Aquinas is a big dog. He's the big dog yeah. for most Roman Catholics. Yeah. He, he's the final kind of, uh, when it comes to tradition and authority, Already, yep. he's like the he's basically the top top for most uh, Roman Catholics, and he would say, "No, this was Mary realizing she too needed a savior." Which Protestants, at least at that point, with Thomas for sure, can say, "Yep, got at least that one right." Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a lot around Mary here, but one thing I think Scott just to say is that uh, there is a blasphemous component to Mary uh, if if Catholics aren't careful, right? There's a respect for Mary, which is one thing, but there is a praying to Mary, a requesting that she be mediatorly involved from heaven, like our co-redeemer, sometimes called our, our co-redemptrix, right? That she's the queen of heaven, and she's... All these different titles are become so much confusion, and it, and it can... It can become outright blasphemous to the point that you're not dealing with a Mary, a Maryology. You're dealing with what rightly could be called a Maryolatry, mm-hmm. as in an idolatrous uh, relationship to Mary. And none of that is biblical. That is pure uh, conjecture. That is tradition. That is certain uh, popes at different times pronouncing things as if he's the Word of God, uh, as, is he, as if he's proclaiming the Word of God. And so, um, we don't we don't want to encourage the Christian to have this um, you know knee jerk negative reaction to hearing to hearing Mary being called blessed. 
the angel says it, blessed are you among women. You're yeah. blessed among women because God graciously has given you this tremendous gift of being the, if you want to go with mother of God in the right sense of that word, this baby is the divine son of God that you will rear up. And and she was there at the cross as well. And mm-hmm. so she believed in the Lord Jesus, her son being her savior. And so we have to, we have to temper it greatly, right? But we don't mean to... Um, go with this uh, uh, opposite error, which we've cautioned against in a couple of spots where we would just um, immediately downplay. Um, she was blessed. Yeah. But and she was faithful. Right. She was holy. She was faithful. She believed in her son, Jesus, being the Christ. And so these are these are very good things still to this day to have no problem as Protestants um, applauding in the sense that we would see a Christian living well yeah. and faithfully. It's, it's sometimes I think about it like, who are you going to be excited to meet when you're in the presence of the Lord, right? right. Um, and you go like Moses or Elijah or you know David or who whoever, yeah, yeah. right? Like Mar- Mary's. Oh, some conversation oh, with Mary. How, why wouldn't you want to have those conversations? And so the, you know, to to the point of not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, like. Mary was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, period. I mean, she she is so clear about that, awaiting the Savior, so excited, looking upon her humble estate. She's greeted as the favored one, right? Blessing, but ju- not just that, but graced one, right? You, right? you are the graced one. And so insofar as there's, man, it, uh, looking forward in that sense, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. It it's, crosses into Mariolatry when you start to think like Mary offered Jesus on Golgotha. And that's, you'll see that. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Versus, um, <clears throat> versus no. When you put Mary in that slot, you're putting Mary in the slot of God. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger of. Yep. And so, again, um, the Bible helps with this stuff, right? The Bible explains clearly. There is no co redemptrix um, in the biblical account of um, the doctrine of salvation, for example. Yeah, and yeah. so, being able to say, hey, the Bible's the authority, the Bible's clear. And if you can, if you can, Wield the word well when it comes to Mary. That will be your best help separating yeah. Scripture from tradition. Yeah, it's good. Uh, another just um, category here that we get questions about reaching out to, ministering to, uh, uh, kind of talking about the faith in apologetic sense with family and friends. How do I reach Roman Catholic family and friends? Here's a direct mailbag question. I have a good friend who is Catholic, and we get into many discussions about our respective religions. Will you please share your thoughts on the Catholic religion through a Christian lens? One thing that we've been seeking to do for you, faithful listener, here, uh, you know, during this entire, uh, um, you know, couple of episodes, I would say one more. Uh, if we are saved by the grace of God alone, how is theology, especially bad theology, this person says, involved in our salvation? And here's the context. I've got many Roman Catholic family members that believe they are saved, and I believe they are as well, this person writes. He says they seem to live their lives to further God's kingdom, be led by the Spirit, and they ask, can I assume that they're saved by the fruit of the Spirit they show, or should I be concerned with their bad theology? That's a good question. Very good question. Where would you start off with someone... Scott? On the first question? On either one of them. On kind the of second s- question. summarize, yeah. Yeah, well, let's just go back to the first question. I think some of why we structured the first episode the way we did was so that you could really quickly have access to the most pivotal points of divergence between mm-hmm. the Bible and Roman Catholicism. I love that you said that real quick. To... Not not Protestants and Catholics, but yeah. the Bible yeah. and Roman Catholicism. Yeah. That's the most important yeah. part right there. Yes, 
yes and yes over episode one as well, if that was not clear <laughs> enough. <laughs> so thank you for saying right, that. Right, right. Yeah. And so so justification, we walked through that, helped you understand that. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> scripture. Um, we talked about the church. We talked about the sacraments right. and that nature grace dynamic um, and talking about the Pope and, and how that's viewed. And so I addressed a number of different places, addressed some scriptures, but I think it would be important if you could just go through episode one and have a general gist for how they understand and kind of conflate justification and sanctification. I have a general understanding of what they believe about the church and that, you know, Christ church interconnection, for example. Um, what the sacraments accomplish. What the sacraments accomplish, of, yeah. yes. And, and that conferring of grace, the difference between imputed righteousness versus infused righteousness, yep. right? Um, the sacrament working in and of itself, ex opere operato, right? Um, yep. Those kind of dynamics, and you go back to listen to episode one, will just help frame the major issues. And so you can really get down to the nuts and bolts and then use the scriptures. This is why places like Romans and Galatians can really be helpful yeah. to you on this issue of justification by faith alone, the authority of the scriptures uh, alone as well. And so anyway, um, just become familiar, that's what I would say, with a few of the key doctrinal issues and divergences between scripture and the Roman Catholic perspective. Yeah, yeah, and then when sure. it comes to like, can I assume in the second question, they're saved by the fruit of the spirit or should I be concerned with their bad theology? Uh, for me, first of all, you should be concerned with both. And it depends where the bad theology is in the end, right? Because to the idea of saying someone, yeah, you know, my friend is Roman Catholic or my mom or something like this, but I'm convinced she's saved. Like I see the fruit of the spirit. And and we've said that's that not necessarily an impossibility, right? Sure. Yeah. I, I think that is, I'm sure that's, that's true <clears throat> mm -hmm. somewhere. Right. And, and multiple places, many places. Um, but the issue really gets down to, um, how is a person made right with God? Okay. That theology really matters. Yep. That is the kicker right there. How is a person made right with God? If, if you can answer that question and then compare it, right? If you know the answer to that question and then compare it to their answer, that's going to be the bad theology that I would at least say on a practical level, on an, on an evangelistic level, I want to be mindful of. I want to hear yeah. that answer because bad theology there, Chris, really, really matters. Yeah, and, and um, these sorts of questions, and we get a lot of these types where it's like, hey, we are not, meaning you and I, nor the person writing this, going to be the final judge of this person's eternal state, right. right? And so we have to be, you know, cautious and cognizant of that, and yet you do look for signs, and, and calling it the fruit of the Spirit, it's important, but I'd also say there's a morality that could mm -hmm. be built into a person's uh, belief that, that expresses itself as kindness and patience and even love to some legitimate degree, but, but non-Christians can express kindness and, and love and patience to a significant degree at times. And then you've got the moral component of against abortion or a conservative stance on things that we would agree with um, as, as Protestant Christians and say that it cannot be the only thing. It's the foundation, like you said, of where does justification come from? What is the all-sufficient, meritorious cause of their redemption? It's Christ alone. Are they articulating that? And their faith is in Christ, not 
uh, my baptism started my salvation, and I'm you know avoiding mortal sins uh, because I don't want to lose my status of justification, and I am doing the following uh, works of Catholicism to, to kind of uh, assuage my conscience and keep me in the faith. If that's what you're hearing from people, and you might need to ask some questions to get to the bottom of that, if that's who your family and friends are, and um, and again, I would I would I would say, you're majoring on the majors, you're opening your Bible, uh, because you cannot assume, in almost any case, you cannot assume that they, they know their Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to know your Bible, where, where would you take them, Romans, Galatians, and other places as well, to see for yourself and show them. Um, and, and then say, this is antithetical. Mm-hmm. At some point, this is antithetical to what Roman Catholic doctrine is. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe that doctrine, you believe God's word, praise God. Mm-hmm. It would be an adequate question to say, why are you still in the church if you don't hold the doctrine? But that might be a secondary conversation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And there's always going to be, just so you know, as you get equipped with passages and you're well-versed in Romans 3, Romans 4, for example, and you're well-versed in Galatians 3 and different places, they're also two. Sure. So I think of like, uh, is it First Peter 3, now baptism saves you, Yeah. right? And and that language, and they're going to play that up and yep. try to get, that's the kind of one of the gotcha texts. There are YouTube apologists for Roman Catholics all over the place as well. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I think of... Um, what was the other one I was thinking of? Now baptism saves you. Oh, and James 2. Mm, pitting James against Paul. Pitting James against Paul and yep. justification there. What kind of justification is that? Um, those would be two passages, First Peter 3 and um, James 2, mm-hmm. my head, and that I would make sure to study well and yep. just be prepared. There's, there's going to, just as much as you should know a few doctrinal, uh, I mean, a few biblical uh, passages to go to, understand and be able to break down where their view on James 2, on 1 Peter 3, if you can name others, um, that they kind of take it to mean something that the text isn't actually saying in the way they think it is, showing them that from Scripture. Your best account is not to get necessarily in a one-for-one argument, but to let the Scriptures do the work, right? The better ability you have to let the Scriptures do the work and understand the context of the passages and what James 2, for example, is speaking of and what kind of justification is being talked about there is so important to helping someone understand that. And just let it fall where it will, right? Because in the end, we are to persuade. Paul talks about persuading in the book of Acts, but we don't have to persuade in an aggressive way because it ultimately doesn't depend on us. Mm -hmm. So we do the work, we give a reason for the hope that we have, but I hope you're you're ready for that reason to yeah. give that reason, you yeah. know. Yep, that's good. So as we, as we talk about strategies, just to kind of summarize here, we're we're establishing and, and and seek to establish Scripture as a supreme authority for truth. Right. This really is a linchpin. We can go to Second uh, Timothy three fifteen to seventeen that it is the breathed out word of God, and there is no other. Yeah. Like period. It's not people Full stop. infallibility. It's not the uh, declaration of the church that creates something different. Fide that is of faith that must be adhered to. It is Scripture as a supreme uh, authority for truth, and then you go from there to, to um, the, the, the again the um, the only meritorious work that is sufficient for your salvation is in Christ. Mm-hmm. It is not any sense of uh, you know indulgences are not going to be nearly as common as they were w- at one point, uh, but nonetheless, purgatory fears around that mortal sins and the division of all these things are man-made traditions. And you talk about the all-sufficient salvation found in Christ. 
Christ, the, not only necessity of faith, but the sufficiency of faith as the instrument for your salvation. If you can draw those strong dividing lines, it'll really, really, uh, we believe it has uh, many times... Um, prompted people to think further, recognize where they may not be as strong as they thought they were, recognize again, like, you're not the one co uh, convincing them to come uh, from Ro Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, but you're saying, like, you can't have both be right. These are different enough that one is going to be right, one's going to be wrong. Yeah, and it would be helpful to—Chris Castaldo wrote a book called Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a Former Catholic. It's mm. a helpful book to get a perspective mm. of someone who was in it, and then um, he does a lot of work with evangelizing Catholics and those kind of things, obviously has that background himself. And so he hits on some really important points just to be mindful of as you're thinking about that. Obviously, mm -hmm. try to hone in on the salvation issue and make sure you understand the gospel and be able to proclaim that. But then he's like, hey, think about this. Like, oftentimes what their draw is to, to be like piqued in curiosity about Christianity mm -hmm. um, is that they're drawn to personal relationship with Jesus, right? Something beyond the external piece, right? They're looking for something more. And um, and that's why they're going after it sometimes, Catholicism. Sure. But it's it's kind of the shadow, and they want the substance, right? And the substance is Christ. And so being able to talk about personal relationship with Jesus, how how does one come to relationship mm. with Jesus? And how is union, How are you kept in that, How too? are you, right? Who's doing the keeping? Yeah, right. like God is keeping you. Right, yeah. even, if, even as he uses means to do that. Yeah. Um, but drawn to that personal relationship with Jesus, that union with Christ by... Um, just the the fruit of that is communion with Christ mm -hmm. and what a gift that is. Um, enjoying direct access to God, right? We have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. He is our mediator, right? right. He is the go-between uh, between us and God and we don't need any other intermediary. And so it really exalts Jesus, rightly so, as he is mm -hmm. plainly exalted in the scriptures. And so that, that that's a couple of them. Um, that I would say they're drawn to. And, and again, on that, you can show them, you, you want to make Jesus exclusively, like rightly, the object of worship alone. Nothing else and no one else, not Mary, not anyone else should be worshiped. Jesus mm. Christ stands alone. And, the, and so many passages of scripture would, would declare that to be the way um, that it is. And so, um, and then I think there's, there's freedom and joy and true gospel salvation mm. that is contagious, compelling, that man sets a man free and there's something compelling about seeing freedom, right? Um, and so live mm, as one good. who is free in Christ and celebrate that you don't have this nagging internal dialogue of like, uh, have I done enough today? Have I done enough today? Am I... How, how are God and I doing, right? And we can right. slip into that mentality sure. really easily. You which, don't have to be Catholic to slip into that mentality. You don't mentality. have to be Catholic. You, you just sure have to be can. human, yeah, right? right? I mean, right. we just tend to go back to uh, how are we doing? Have we done enough? Instead of resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there's, again, something so compelling about that when you realize, man, that is sufficient, mm -hmm. right? And we actually don't need to be more spiritual than God. Yeah, um, yeah, God yeah. sent, the Father sent the Son so that we could be made righteous in and through His person, 
his work. I think if I would add one last component to that is just, is for the the evangelical Christian, many of you know, many of you that's you listening is to say, um, recognize the place of reverence and holiness. Uh, oftentimes, Catholics rightly will criticize even evangelicalism broadly, or Christians, uh, Protestants, to be to be chummy with God and Jesus is my homeboy and uh, what's up, Dad? Like as the beginning of your prayer, Daddy God, you know, Daddy God, and like the, the, those are embarrassingly real things within just in general evangelical right? churches, Protestant churches. Uh, but to say for the Protestant, recognize the place of reverence, the proper fear of God. Uh, like the Old Testament rightly talks about, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and to, to, to show a Catholic friend or family member that, that these things are included in holiness and a holy God, and e- even being okay with certain levels of, uh, whether it's mystery or whatever it is, that there is a there there's a reverence of the Almighty, and, and I hope that you, uh, if you go to Doxa and you're listening to this, you can even hear and see that this is not trite, uh, this is not... Um, just casual, you know. Uh, it, not that there's just one way to uh, to be, you know, in church, but to say we are after something uh, because because God is worthy, right, of our greatest pursuit of holiness in our life. And so, I think that's an important thing to show to a, a Catholic who kind of knows Protestants again, embarrassingly so, is overly trite and superficial, and to show that it's very important to us. So let me let me just close with yeah. Galatians two, um, and the, again, there's so much more to say, but hopefully this will get the ball rolling here. But Galatians two, and one of those really helpful passages, um, we ourselves, this is verse fifteen, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, this is Paul speaking. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Mm. I want to live out of that truth. Yep. Amen. Well, we hope, listener, this has been helpful for you, these two episodes. Um, and there, as you mentioned, Scott, there may very well be a time to come back and say, let's isolate one thing. Let's do a deep dive. Let's have just a, a robust uh, explanation from a, from a Catholic perspective, but then understand where it diverts. We may get to that point, but we hope that this is just, um, for those of you needing a broad overview and introduction and the motivation of how to relate to and minister, evangelize a Roman Catholic person who may very well not be in Christ, may very well not know the true gospel, prepare yourself, arm yourself with this, and pray 
prayerfully go forward in those relationships. Uh, also, just uh, by way of closing here, appreciate every five-star review that we uh, have. And uh, Scott, you're fond of saying, give the one-stars to Chris and the five-stars to Scott. If that creates more five-stars, I'm fine with that. No, because you know it's I mean? the same podcast, Chris. No, oh, oh, no, we can't, we can't have that. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so if you want to write a review, we love that as well. You can find uh, how to uh, review uh, uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream. They all have got the star system for leaving a rating. We greatly appreciate that as the word continues to get out about Doxologic. And listener, until next time, we look forward to being together. You've been listening to Doxologic, a podcast by Doxa Church in Rockland, California. To learn more, visit us online at doxa.church.